Did you know you can exclude up to $500,000 of gain from the sale in your primary residence? You heard that right. I'm about to discuss it in this, the 71st episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for listening. I'm glad you're here. So today, let's talk about the potential uh, exclusion of gain you can have on the sale of your primary residence. A lot of you probably know about this already, and if you do, hopefully you at least pick up some uh, added little details and tidbits I'm about to go over for those of you who don't know about it. Uh, this, this, this is huge, or this can be huge, especially if you've owned your home a long time and it's quite appreciated, meaning the price at which you're going to sell it is uh, a lot higher than the price you bought it potentially decades ago. Well, thankfully, you can exclude potentially up to half a million dollars or $500,000 of that gain from being taxable. So really, really powerful tool. And I'm, uh, that's what today's all about. Should be a fun one. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout to my friends at Boomer Benefits. Boomer Benefits, Boomer Benefits. For those who don't know, uh, I am in a limited engagement sponsorship arrangement with them, where they are helping support the uh, the production of, of this this fine podcast, Retirement Planning Education, for uh, for a while. And uh, who are they? Boomer Benefits. Talked about them a lot, but what they are or who they are? They are a Medicare policy, uh, uh, Medigap or Advantage plan policy agent based out of Dallas-Fort Worth and can work with folks throughout the country. I believe in every state except New York, although I'm told that uh, is is in the works if it's not not in place already. So what they do is they, they help you on top of just having the base Medicare, which in effect everyone has to have unless you have qualifying coverage to work or something. Uh, you know, once, you, once you're at 65, you, you need to sign for Medicare. There's Medicare doesn't cover everything. There's things it doesn't cover. There's certain amounts it doesn't cover, co-insurance, co-payments, et cetera. So it might behoove you to have supplemental or additional or different type of coverage to help cover things that uh, regular, you know, normal Medicare doesn't. So Boomer Benefits can help in, in uh, helping you pick through what type or combination of policies could make the most sense for you based on doctors you want or need, services you want or need, prescriptions you want or need. And they can uh, do, help, help you do the homework and shopping around to find uh, the best policy or policies that make the most sense for you. And this is all dependent where you live. Different different insurers uh, do or don't offer services and policies in different states. So Boomer Benefits, the benefit of, of working in, in most, if not all states, is that they can represent people and, and show you policies that are available in your state. Because again, every state, you know, your neighbor in uh, the next state over, or well, a friend in the next state over, may have a completely different uh, set of Medicare policies than you do simply because you have different things available to you. So uh, it, it is a this, this Medicare thing is, is incredibly convoluted and big and, and hard to research. Not that it's insurmountable, but it is a lot of work to do on your own. And it is something that you shouldn't just set and forget. Uh, a lot of these policies change offerings and what's covered and prices and stuff and things like drugs. There's what's called a formulary. That's the, the, the drugs that are covered on the plan you have. This stuff can all change every year. So it's really good to stay on top of it as your life and medical needs change, as your prescription needs change, as the, the policies themselves change, uh, folks like Boomer Benefits can work with you year to year to uh, to figure out what makes the most sense then, now, going forward, et cetera. So give them a check. If you are uh, of Medicare age or close to Medicare age, they can help you, greatly help you uh, go through the process and, and do what's best for you. So check them out, boomerbenefits.com. There will be a link 
to them or to that website in the notes of the show, but very straightforward. Boomerbenefits.com, where Boomer stands for uh, baby boomer. All right, moving on. Let's talk about selling a house. So, um, majority, uh, basically all of what I'm saying today is an IRS publication 523, which you can find a link to here. For those of you interested in learning more, definitely read that. Got to give credit to the IRS. They have some really good, what they call publications, and it goes by numbers. And this one's 523, um, th that discuss different topics uh, regarding taxation, how things work, things to consider, exceptions, exclusions, whatever. And it's written fairly well, generally speaking, these things, uh, you know, plain English, straightforward, in my opinion, do a great job of covering the technical aspects and not too technical, um, you know, mind numbing word and verbiage. So anyway, so check out publication 523. Again, you can have a, there's a link to it in the notes to this. That's, that's the, the text of what I'm talking about today, basically. Um, so it's all about selling a primary residence. There, technically, it's called a Section 121 exclusion. What does that mean? Well, the Internal Revenue Code, which is the tax code, you know, all this income tax stuff resides within a formal set of code. Uh, section 121 of that code is the section that discusses the exclusion of some gain or all of the gain potentially on the sale of your primary residence. So why do this? Well, um, you probably figured this out, but in the U.S., the government, the tax code, et cetera, they, they, they want people, they, they promote home ownership. They want to incentivize people to own homes. And the tax code is often a way for um, uh, to, to have sort of political goals carried out or helped to incentivize things. For example, there's a reason why the interest that you pay on the mortgage on your house could potentially be deductible on your taxes. You know, that's an incentive for you to own a home and get a mortgage on it. Or in selling a primary residence, that's an incentive for you to own a home in the first place because if and when you do sell it, you can exclude some of the gain you'd otherwise have. So there's you know, typical uh, or other things like this tucked throughout the tax code that, that are there to uh, to help incentivize pe people to own homes. This is one of it. So before we get into the, the nitty gritty of the discussion, let's first talk about what is a gain on selling a house and what all goes into it. There's more to it than this, but this is a super basic example. Let's assume you're going to sell your primary residence today for half a million dollars. You know, there's a sale price, a contract price you agreed to with the buyer. And let's assume you bought your house decades ago for $100,000. All else equal, when you sell it today, you're going to have a $400,000 gain. You bought it for $100,000, you're selling it for $500,000, $400,000 is your gain. All else equal, that's taxable. But wait, there's more. It's not that simple. Um, a lot of the expenses and costs associated with both buying and selling the house could be deductible. So for example, back to our example here, you're selling the house for 500, you paid 100 for it. You're going to have a realtor commission most likely. Let's just assume that realtor charges 5% all in. That's going to be 25 grand gets shaved right off the top of your $500,000 sale price. So you don't actually get 500 grand from the buyer. You get 500 minus 25 grand. Like that, that's the realtor's cut. You end up walking with 475, you know, $475,000. So in this case, it's your gain is the $475,000 relative to the $100,000 initial purchase price. So now your taxable gain is only $375, not the $400,000 I, I just mentioned before. And other things like legal fees, you know, you, you paid a thousand bucks to a lawyer at the closing that also reduces the, the net sale price and therefore reduces the taxable gain you'll have. Um, recording fees and other sort of nickel and dime stuff like, you know, it costs 50 bucks or something to record the transfer of the sale with your town. That 50 bucks reduces the net sales price and therefore reduces the gain you have. As far as the original cost or basis, recall I said you bought it for 100 30 years ago, let's say. 
Well, what if you've since uh, any improvements you did to it, not repairs, but improvements, like you put in a new kitchen for 30 grand along the way, where your original cost is now the, the 100 purchase price plus the $30,000 kitchen improvement? Or what if you added a deck for 15 grand? So you now have a kitchen for 30, a deck for 15. You've now added a total of $45,000 of improvements. So add that to your 100,000 purchase price. So now when you're determining your gain, it's not just sales price minus the original 100 purchase, it's sales price minus the original 100 purchase minus the value of uh, or the price of all the uh, improvements you made, like the new kitchen, like the deck. So it's important to keep track of this stuff. You, you should ideally have receipts for all this because uh, that, that's the substantiated proof if anyone questioned. But um, you know this is called your quote-unquote basis. It's your original cost plus the value of all of the improvements you made along the way plus some of the uh, purchase expenses at the time of the closing when you bought it. Like again, you paid a thousand bucks to a lawyer to help you close. Well, that thousand dollars gets added to the original cost or basis of your property. So there's lots of ways, legal ways, you know, I'm not making these up, but there's lots of ways in which the ultimate gain you're going to potentially have in your house is much smaller than just simply sales price minus original purchase price. Cool. All right. So, so that, that's the gain. Um, this, this gain exclusion that you can potentially have only applies on your principal residence. It's not a vacation home. It's not like a second, third, fourth home that you have. It has to be your principal residence. So you may be saying, but Andy, I own two houses. Well, good for you, first of all, very cool. But um, let's assume you have two houses. One might clearly be a vacation house. You know, it's at the beach, you're only there, whatever, eight weeks out of the year. But what if you have two houses, you kind of bounce back and forth between, and you sort of view them both collectively as your principal residence. Well, in the eyes of the IRS, only one of them actually is. So when it's not clear, I mean, the, the, the biggest uh, sort of bright line test is where do you spend the most time? If, if you spend nine months out of the year in one house, three months in the other, well, it's pretty clear. You know, the house that you're in nine months is almost certainly your primary residence. But if it's not that clear or you spend like 50-50, for example, like literally 50-50, then it comes down to what the IRS calls facts and circumstances. So which address is the one that you have on file with the postal service as your primary address? Where's your voter registration? You know, which house, which address? Uh, which address do you use on your federal and state tax returns? Uh, your driver's license, which home address do you use for that? Those things all help determine which address is your primary one. Or even just uh, actual physical location of the property. Which one's closer to where you work? Which one's closer to where you bank? Which one's closer to family and friends? Which one's closer to clubs and religious organizations that, that you uh, belong to? All these things, it's like a mosaic. It's put them together. Which one paints the strongest picture of, okay, this one is the one's my primary residence. So anyway, that's your primary residence. That's the property that's potentially eligible for a exclusion of uh, gain when, when you ultimately sell the place. And it doesn't apply to just single family houses. I mean, it does, but it could also be condos, co-ops, mobile homes, even houseboats <laughs> can be your primary re residence for purposes of uh, getting a gain exclusion when when you sell the joint. Um, let me just step back. I, I should have mentioned this before. So how are these things taxed? Well, let's go back to our basic example. You sell it for 500, bought it for 100. Let's just keep it super clean. You have a $400,000 gain. And let's assume there's no exclusion yet at this point. So you have a $400,000 of taxable gain in the year of the sale. How's it taxed? Well, if you own the home more than 12 months, that $400,000 gain will be called a long-term capital gain meaning it's, it's taxed at rates that are lower than normal ordinary income tax rates. Specifically, the rates are either going to be 0, 15, or 20%, or a combination of those. It all depends on the rest of your income and, and you know where that is, so it's beyond the scope of this episode, but just know that it's 0, 15, or, and or 20% federal income tax. Uh, 
There may also be an extra 3.8% what's called net investment income tax. I did a whole episode on that. I don't call when, but if I remember it, I'll go back and find the link and add it. Um, if your income's over 200 grand, if you're single, or maybe I think 250, if you're married, there, there could be an additional three point or there will be a th- additional 3.8% net investment income tax applied on this gain on top of the zero 15 or uh, uh, 20% tax rate you'd already be in. Well, I guess we're implying the zero because your income's too low, but whatever. Uh, okay. So that, that, that's the taxing. Um, so anyway, so you sell your single family house, your condo, your co-op, your mobile home, your houseboat, whatever, and it's a primary residence. And you want to know, am I eligible to exclude some or all the gain? Well, how much can you exclude if you are eligible? If you're married, it could be up to $500,000 of gain is excluded or can be excluded. If you're single or married and file returns separately, it could be two hundred up to $250,000 of gain can be excluded from taxation. So that's at the federal level. Um, I, I should mention states might be different. Now, the vast majority of states, to my knowledge, is piggyback off the federal treatment. So if you do get to exclude some or all the gain on your house sale federally, um, most likely you can at the state level as well. Although I can't say that with certainty because I, I don't know every state's tax code and home sale treatment off the top of my head. But chances are, uh, if the gain is excludable federally, it's almost certainly excludable at the state level as well. If you even live in a state that has income tax, you know, a handful of states don't. All right. uh, So how how are you eligible for it? And, you know, how much do you get? Well, there's a few things that automatically disqualify you. If you acquired the home through a what's called a 1031 exchange in the last five years, you're not eligible for this. What's a 1031 exchange? Separate topic. But basically, that's where you have a rental property and you sell it and you, and you in effect roll the proceeds into another rental property within certain rules and parameters. That's a 1031 exchange. So if you acquired this house through a 1031 exchange within the last five years, hard stop, you are not eligible to uh, to exclude any of the gain on the sale of this house. Or if you are subject to expatriation tax, I'll be honest, I don't even know what that is, but I was, you know, in glancing through publication 523, you know, made it clear that these were the two automatic disqualifications. So if you're listening and you are subject to expa- expatriation tax uh, and you're selling a primary house, sorry, but um, it, it reads to me that you cannot exclude the gain on the sale. So let's assume those two disqualifications do not apply to you. Now, how do you know if the if the gain exclusion does apply? There's basically a two-pronged test. And like everything, there's exceptions, but there's a two-pronged test. The ownership test and the use or residence test. The ownership test simply says you need to have owned it at least 24 months out of the last five years up to the date of the sale. And those 24 months don't need to be continuous. I mean, it, chances are that they're going to be. I mean, no one sells a house, buys it, sells it, buys it back, whatever. But the point is 24 months out of the last five years up to the date of ownership, uh, up to the date of the sale, you need to, to uh, that's what you get to qualify. Man, I'm stuttering, I don't know why. That's what you get to qualify for this ownership test. Again, own it at least 24 months, don't need to be continuous out of the five years leading up to the date of the sale. For married couples, only one spouse needs to meet the ownership test. So let's say you're married, you've been married for a long time, you two own a house, but technically the house is only in one of the spouse's names. That's fine. As long as one of the spouse meets this 24-month ownership test, you two collectively as a married unit are good. You meet the test. So that's test one. That's prong one. Prong two is the use test or residence test. This says that in addition to meeting the ownership test, you need to have used the property as your primary residence at least 24 months out of the last five years up to the date of the sale. So it's the same general 24 months 
uh, within the last five years up to date of the sale. They do not need to be continuous 24 months. It just, in effect, needs to be a total of 730 days during the last five years. You need to have used this place as your primary residence in order to qualify for the ownership. Uh, I'm sorry, for the for the use test slash residence test. Now, for married couples, unlike the ownership test where only one spouse needs to technically own the house, each spouse needs to meet the use test or residence test. So each spouse needs to have lived in the property for a total of 730 days uh, within the five years up to the date of the sale in order for both spouses to meet the use test slash residence test. Cool. So you meet those two, you're good for the most part. Um, you you qualify for the gain exclusion of 500 grand if you're married or 250 grand if you are single or married and file separate returns. Some other things to consider or keep in mind, vacations or other short times away uh, do not count against you. So let's assume you lived in the house for exactly two years within the last five. But during those two years, like you were away for a week on vacation. Well, that's fine. They, they don't ding you and exclude time on vacation. Now, at some extent, they may. I mean, if you're taking an extended vacation and, uh, I don't know, you're out of the country for like three years or four years, then it starts to become not even gray. I mean, I, I don't think that that would qualify. But um, anyway, so the point is, you know, short-term uh, time away, you know, you're at a seminar, you're at a vacation, you're out here or there for a week or whatever, doesn't count against you. That's still rolled up and included in your uh, period of use or, or, you know, residence in that house. Um, here's an interesting sort of exclusion. If you're physically or mentally unable to care for yourself and you need to go to a home, like a, uh, a care facility or something, you can still potentially meet this, this two-year test, even if you didn't actually live in it for two years. So here's how it goes. Follow me. Stick with me here. Within the last five years up to the date of the sale, so long as you lived in it at least 12 months, or I guess that's you know 365 days, as long as you actually lived in it for, for one year or 365 days within the last five, any periods of, of uh, residence where you were in a care facility, that also counts. So again, you're, you're physically or mentally unable to care for yourself. You basically can't be in your home by yourself. You have to be in a facility. The time in the facility can count and can be added to, you only need a minimum of 12 months or 365 days in your house in the last five years. You string that all together. If, if, you, if you can cobble together two years, 730 days between your actual time in the house plus time in the facility, then you're good. You meet the, uh, the, the use test slash residence test. Good. Another thing to keep in mind, you can only use this exclusion once every two years. So you may be saying, I have two properties. What if I live in one for two full years, sell it, get the exclusion, and then I move into another house that I live in for two years, you know, two years in a day, whatever, sell that. Can I take the exclusion again or am I limited to only using it once in a lifetime or once every five years or whatever? No, you can use the exclusion every two years, which basically means you, you can't sell a primary residence faster than two years apart. I mean, you can, but you won't be eligible for the exclusion. So yes, you, you own two houses. One's a vacation house, one's a primary residence, let's say. Uh, you've lived in your primary residence. You, you own them both for 10 years, so you meet that five-year test. You, you lived in your primary residence for, let's just say, three years, right? Or two years, whatever. Two and a half doesn't matter. More than two is the point. And you sell it you can take the exclusion for it. You then, after you sell that house, you move into what was your vacation house. You now make that your primary residence. You live there for now two years. You can then sell that and also get, uh, again, get the capital gain exclusion of, again, $500,000 if you're married or two fifty dollars if you're single or married and file a separate return. 
Um, there's some other exceptions here. I'm just naming a few. There, there's there's more than this in publication 523, but I won't get into all of them. One is if a separation or divorce occurred during your ownership. So example would be um, you own the house. It's not yet two year or whatever, not yet two years. Uh, you have, you've only lived in it for a year. You get a divorce and your spouse now under the divorce decree, your spouse is uh, allowed to live in the house. You are not, you, you got to move. Your spouse is living in the house. You still own, but your spouse is living in it. Th that, that time that your, oh, your ex-spouse, I should say, the time that your ex-spouse is living in your house, that can count towards your use of the house for purposes of meaning the two years because you know it's a divorce decree that that stipulated you have to get out so your ex can live there that can still count as your time in the house so when you do eventually sell it your ex-spouse's time in the house can count towards your residence in the house if there's a death of a spouse and uh you don't remarry you can still well let me step back so spouse dies um let's say you got married uh your spouse owned the house for 10 years you got married a year ago you and your spouse and your spouse lived in it for 10 years. You got married a year ago, let's say. So you've only been in the house for one year, but your spouse has owned it and lived in it for 10 years. Your spouse now dies. You got this house, you know, the spouse gave it to you when, when, when he or she passed. You got the house, you've only lived in it for a year. Well, so long as you don't remarry, you can use the time that your late spouse owned and lived in the house as your own. And since your late spouse owned and lived in it for 10 years, you can port that over and treat it as your own. So you only lived in it for one year, but now just like this, you know, you can consider yourself having owned it and lived in it for 10 years. So if you want to sell the house now, you can, great. You can use the, uh, the capital gain exclusion of 500 or 250. Now, here's another uh, thing specific to, to widows and widowers. Um, when, when a spouse dies, you can still file a married filing joint tax return for that year of death. But after that, you need to start filing a single. There's some other criteria. Like if, if you have a uh, dependent child at home, you can be head of household or, you know, a widower, qualified widower. But let's assume there's no kids in the picture. It's just you and a spouse and, and spouse died. Well, you can still file married filing joint the year of death. After that, you need to start filing single uh, unless you remarry, of course. But just because you're filing single now doesn't necessarily mean you lose, you automatically lose the $500,000 exemption and only fall back down to the $250,000 exemption. If you sell the house within two years of the death of your spouse and you haven't remarried in that time and you meet the rest of the criteria, you can still use the $500,000 gain exception uh, even if you're now filing as a single taxpayer. Yeah, I'll restate that. So spouse died. As long as you sell the house within two years of that spouse's death, you can still use the $500,000 married gain exemption, even if you are filing as a single taxpayer in the year of sale. Good. Another exception, if you are a service member, uh, you know, the military, time you're away on active duty, you can still get credit for that as time you lived in the house. Recall I said before, short stints away, like vacation or something, don't count against you. Well, if you're active duty, you may be away for months or years. Um that's a long stint away. Be, given the nature of why you're away, you know, for the country, for serving, for serving the country, um, that that time can count as uh, use or residence in your house, even though you're not physically there. Or you can also suspend this five-year window. Recall, basically, all this stuff has to happen within five years of the date of the sale. You can suspend that five years for periods you are on active duty. All in all, you can suspend up to ten years. So you can ultimately give yourself a 15-year look back, right? The five years plus 10 years of suspension uh, if you're active duty uh, military service member. 
Or here's another uh, exception, and I'll stop here with exceptions. Um, if your previous home was destroyed or condemned, such as natural disaster or, uh, yeah, I don't know, taken over by a uh, biblical amount of like termites or something that destroyed the house or it was condemned for you know whatever reason and found out the house was on a uh, toxic landfill and whatever. So let's assume you were in that house for, for what, four years, right? It got destroyed or condemned. You moved to a new house because you had to. You had to get out of the old house. You move to a new house. You're only there for one year. And you want to sell it for whatever the reason is. Well, you may be like, mm, dang, I've only been here one year. I don't yet meet the two years uh, ownership and use test. Well, guess what? The fact that you're in that new house because you had to leave your old house because it was destroyed or condemned, that time that you were in and owned that own house can port over and apply towards a new house. So the fact that you were in your old house for four years, I think I said, you can use that four years toward, well, I mean, that, that alone already meets it, but you can use that four years and add it to the one year that you're in this new replacement house. And therefore you're going to qualify to meet this, you know, two out of five uh, tests. All right. Now, what if you don't qualify for the full 500,000 or $250,000 exclusion? Again, if you're married or, or single, well, you might still be able to get a partial exclusion where you in effect prorate, um, you know, the, the, the two year ownership and use things. There's a few examples uh, where you may be able to get a partial exclusion. One is if you took a new job or transferred to a new job that's at least 50 miles farther from the home than your than your current or old job is. So like your current job, let's say, is 15 miles away from your house, right? And um, you're transferred to a new job that's that's 80 miles away from your new house. In theory, you can drive it. I mean, it would probably be miserable to do that uh, every day, but you can do it in theory. Uh, or you move because of it. Like, yeah, I, I can't do this. I can't make this work. So you move to a new house that's closer to this new job because this new job is more than 50 miles further than, than your current one is. That's where you can get a partial exemption. So let's assume you lived in your old house for a year. You owned it and lived in it for a year. And then you got this new job that's 80 miles away and you move because of that. Well, you can, because you lived and owned it uh, for a year as opposed to the full two, you can prorate your gain. You basically met half the length of time of use and ownership. So your gain will be cut, I'm sorry, your gain exclusion will be cut in half. If you're married, it goes from 500 to 250 now, or if you're single, it goes from 250 to 125. So there can be a partial exclusion. It's not necessarily all or none. Another thing where you can get a partial exclusion is because of uh, um, medical reasons. So I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here because there's a lot of words. I figured I'd just quote it verbatim. You move to obtain, provide or facilitate, diagnose, cure, mitigate, or mit uh, mitigation, it sounds like it's missing, not worded right, but whatever, or treatment of disease, illness, or injury for yourself or a family member, or you move to obtain and provide medical or personal care for yourself or a family member. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example here, but again, you owned and lived in a house for a year. Uh, for whatever, you know, some illness happens, some disease happens, you need to move 100 miles away, well, or there's this treatment facility or a hospital 100 miles away where there's a specialist that you need to see for treatment for this for this uh, disease or illness. And because it's 100 miles away and you gotta go there every day, let's say, it's not feasible to drive. I mean, you can, but it's not feasible to drive back and forth every day. So you move to a house that's closer to that uh, that hospital or that doctor, uh, you, can get a, you can get a prorated exclusion. So again, you've owned and lived your house for a year. Uh, I believe the way it would work then is your exclusion gets cut in half because you know one year is half of the two year ownership and use thing that you'd otherwise have to meet because you had to move for uh, medical reasons. All right. Um, and then final comments here. This this could be a, quite a quagmire, so I won't get into it too much. But 
you may be saying, okay, cool. I have this house that I lived in for the last three years, but I used to rent it out five years ago, six years ago, eight years ago, whatever. You know, I use it as a rental property for two years, three years, four years, five years. How's that work? Um, there's more to it than this, but at a super high level, what happens is, well, well two things, I guess. Anyone who has a rental or had a rental knows about or likely knows about the expense deductions you get for depreciation. What's depreciation? Depreciation is simply an asset, you know, a physical thing like a house is assumed to have a useful life. It gets old after time. It degrades. It breaks down. Things stop working. It depreciates. You know, it, it, it declines in usable value. Um, when you when you do have a house and you use it as a rental, there's depreciation that's calculated every year. It's typically based on a 27 and a half year schedule, but uh, I won't get into the details. But a certain amount of the, the value of the house is assumed to decline or depreciate in value every year. You can take that year's depreciation and use it as an expense. Uh, you know, if you get rental income of a hundred bucks, uh, well, whatever, a thousand bucks, and you have uh, $200 of depreciation on your house for the year, your taxable rental income is only 800. It's a, it's a thousand of gross rental income minus the 200 of depreciation expense. So you're only taxing $800 of income that year. Sounds great, right? And this is why a lot of people think rentals are, are these like awesome tax saving things. Well, it's not that simple. The depreciation isn't a free gift. It's a non-cash expense. So you're not actually paying anything for depreciation, yet you get to deduct it as an expense. So it's like, awesome, give me more. Well, it's not that simple. When you eventually sell the place, all the depreciation that was or could have been expensed throughout the years gets recaptured. You have to treat it as a gain, basically, and pay income on it. All that depreciation expense, the piper comes around, comes calling. You got to pay tax on that depreciation expense when you when you go to sell it. Uh, that it's tax at ordinary income tax up to a maximum rate of twenty five percent. Anyway, where am I going with this? Well, any any depreciation that was expensed and needs to get recaptured when you sell it, that isn't eligible to be excluded under these these two fifty or five hundred. Section 121 capital gain exemption. So, so keep that in mind. Uh, you, you can't make that depreciation recapture go away. This is where a 1031 exchange comes in. I, I don't want to make this a topic, but again, I, I said earlier, if you have a rental property, you sell it and you roll the proceeds into another rental property under certain parameters and timelines, you don't get rid of the gain and depreciation and stuff. You, you just you just kick it to a new property. You, you just further defer it and you know, worry about it later when you eventually sell that second property. But anyway, so let's assume you're not doing a 1031 exchange. You are outright selling this property that you used as a rental before, but have since lived in it for a while. Um, that, that depreciation recapture cannot be excluded under this capital gain exclusion. Also, this is where it gets a little tricky. You need to prorate your time in the house. The time you own the house, you need to prorate how much of it was rental use versus how much of it was uh, you know, personal primary residence use. So I shouldn't get into numbers too much here in an audio format, but let's assume the example is this. You sell your house for a million bucks. Your uh, original cost was only 100. No, that's, that's big. You sell it for 1.1 million. Your original cost is only $100,000. So you have a million dollar gain, right? Let's assume you uh, owned it for 10 years in total. Three of the years were rental years. Seven of the years were uh, you used it as a primary residence. So now you have to prorate things. Of your total million dollar gain, seven hundred thousand of it, or you know, seven out of ten, seven hundred thousand of that gain is attributable to your time using as primary residence. Three hundred thousand of it is attributable to your time using it as a rental. 
only the $700,000 gain attributable to your time as a primary residence is eligible to be excluded. The 300,000 is not. So in this example, let's say you're married, you sell it, um, you have a $700,000 gain attributable to your time there as, as primary residence. You can exclude 500,000 of that. So you now have 200,000 of taxable gain attributable to primary residence use plus 300,000 of gain attributable to rental use plus the depreciation recapture of whatever that is. I, I didn't put a number to it here. That was a bad example because you still got the full gain exemption. Let me give you a different example here. Um, let, let's flip the script. So same thing. You sold the house for 1.1. You bought it for 1, 100,000. Um, so you have $1 million gain in total. Let's assume you rented it for uh, for seven years out of the 10 that you owned it. And you lived in it for only three out of the 10 you owned it. So now only 30% of that million dollar gain is attributable to your time you lived in as primary residence. So 300 grand of the gain is eligible for the exclusion because that was your primary residence time. 700,000 of the gain is not eligible for the exclusion because that was your rental time. So you're married. You have up to $500,000 of gain you can exclude and you have a million dollars of total gain on this house. But only $300,000 of that total gain is eligible for the exclusion because that's the portion that was attributable to your time using it as a primary residence. Got it? So of your 500,000 gain, you can only exclude 300. The other 200,000 of gain exclusion is basically lost in this case. So you're gonna pay tax on uh, the $700,000 gain attributable to the rental time and whatever the depreciation recapture was for rental. All right, I'm, I'm sure your eyes and ears are glazed over at this point because of that. I, I hate using numbers, numerical examples in a podcast, but I felt like I kind of had to. Um, hopefully the numbers are round and easy enough for, for you all to digest. Uh, is that it? That's it. Yeah, look at my notes here. That, that is all. So that's it. That's the section 121 capital gain exclusion for the sale of your primary residence. Hopefully you found this helpful. If you did, do me a solid uh, and, and please leave a review, ideally an Apple podcast for those of you who use Apple. If not, um, you know, other platforms, uh, I guess they'll work if they have review mechanisms, but um, greatly appreciate it. The, the more likes and stars and clicks and views and reviews in particular uh, this podcast gets, the more it's, it's able to be found by others. So I like to think this podcast is good. Hopefully you do as well. Let's uh, let's help share the wealth and get others to uh, to find it, to listen to it, to enjoy it, to learn from it. Everybody wins. Uh, cool. If you haven't already, check out retirementplanningeducation.com where you can find this podcast. You can also find the YouTube channel by the same name and you can find, what else can you find there? Uh, oh, the Facebook group called Retirement Planning Education. It used to be called Taxes and Retirement. There's a link to that as well. And there's a whole host of free fun stuff that you can just click on and download. There's no, hey, give me your name, email, phone number, and I'll put you on a marketing list. None of that. Just click on it. Boom. Download. There you go. Enjoy. All sorts of checklists, flowcharts, summaries, some things I made, some things I bought, and that I share with you all for free. So anyway, check that out. Good stuff. That's that. I'm done. I uh, hope you enjoyed this. Take care. That's a wrap for the 71st episode of Retirement Planning Education. I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.